Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Thank you for tuning into my podcast. Uh, today is going to be part two. I believe it will be a two-part one. It might be three. I'll, I'll know by the end of this if it's a three-part, and I'll let you know at the end. But anyway, this is a two-part. Uh, we're talking about testosterone in men and the testosterone deficiency and the impact it's having on men and, and how it's being treated in, in some different ways we can approach that uh, clinically. So today's part two, as I mentioned in the first part, and as I mentioned in every podcast, everything I talk about is cited. I do a lot of research into these podcasts, and I use research to guide me when I write them. So, uh, you know, as you see, there'll be this little thing that happens up in the corner. When you see that, please look into the video description, and there will be a timestamp with the citation with what I'm talking about. So just to make it more specific, I encourage you to research this stuff. This stuff impacts us. And don't just take my word for things. And don't just take my research's word for things. Use that research to springboard off into other things yourself. You know, it's important. It's important to have more than just one source. And I should just be one. And there should be many others out there. If you disagree with what I'm saying, instead of saying, I don't think you're right, show me the research, show me why you don't think I'm right. This is the best way to have these conversations. And it's important to not agree all the time and to have a good, meaningful conversation with one another where I get to learn what it is that you're seeing. And that's how we grow. That's how we learn. That's how we become smarter. You know, we challenge these things and find the best ideas win. And, and, and we all want the best ideas to win, especially in this subject. So I'm going to continue with testosterone replacement therapy and testosterone deficiency in men. Um, how do we lab for this? How do we follow up with these? How do we treat these men? How do we figure this out? You know, with men, we run uh, lab work for testosterone to diagnose, and there's a good algorithm out there to diagnose. We want to run their testosterone-free total levels in the morning. Uh, we want to run, you know, pituitary testing to see whether their pituitary is sending the right message down to the testicles. Uh, we want to get to the source of this is a problem up here, a problem down in the testicles. That's the first step. And once we discern where it is, that's going to help us figure out how to treat that. So what are the treatments that are available out there? What's out there? Well, you know, HCG, you know, human chorionic gonadotropin. And, uh, you know, whenever the media talks about it, they're like, this is a pregnancy hormone. That's just stupid. Let me just tell you straight up right now that it is, hold on, wait, no, it is a pregnancy hormone, HCG, but it also affects FSH, LH in the brain. It's that part of the brain, it's a signal that goes down to the testicles and it promotes spermatogenesis and to a lesser degree, testosterone production. So yes, it is present during pregnancy, but it also plays a role as, as meeting that signal down to the testicles to, to be productive. That's what it also does. So it's not just, I'm gonna give you a woman's pregnancy hormone, I'm giving you this hormone that is present here and also present here and has this effect here, okay? It's more complex than that. Just know that. Um, Clomid is another one. And Clomid's, you know, it's just kind of a, a weird drug, but that, that does play a role. It allows spermatogenesis and a little bit better than, than ACG. Clomid is going to help you have a little bit more testosterone. So that's a little bit there. But again, it's not natural. This is not bioidentical. This is synthetic, okay? Um, we have testosterone is something called undecanoate done orally. And you do, you know, 120 to 240 milligrams twice a day or three times a day. It's convenient. It's done orally. The problem is whenever you put testosterone in your body orally, it's hepatotoxic. You know, you run the risk of causing some damage to your liver. So say you have low testosterone, you're going to be on this the rest of your life probably. You know, if there's damage to the testicles, a lot of times when you're low in testosterone, it doesn't come back. Sometimes it does, rarely it does, but, but most of the time when you have a testosterone deficiency, you're on this for life. 
so how, why would you start taking something that's going to long-term lead to liver damage? You're not. So, so oral testosterone is not the best way of going. Um, then they try going at it with, you know, testosterone is doing like a little buckle implant, something that goes in your cheek there. And, and that's a little bit better because you're going to get more absorption, you know, across your gums. The problem with that is that you're going to still swallow your saliva and that's going to have testosterone in it. Over time, your liver is not going to be good with that. Hepatotoxic, okay? Um, testosterone cypionate is the heavy lifter in the industry these days, pardon the pun. But testosterone cypionate, it's a better version of it. We use that more often in my clinic. It's an injectable. It lasts seven days, so you do every seven-day injection. And, uh, you know, we always run the risk with these guys, you know, with anything. There's no perfect means of delivery to a body. So, you know, giving an injection of testosterone cypionate, you run the risk of there being more downstream metabolites being elevated, such as estradiol, because testosterone will aromatize estradiol, or testosterone will cause your body to make too many red blood cells, so you have polycythemia. Um, the thing about this you always have to watch is that your injections and your doses that you do with your patient do not get these wide fluctuations. You need to make sure you're doing a steady dose. You're very cautious with your dose and very, very precise with it. Testosterone cypionate lasts seven days in your body, so you want to make sure you keep that idea that it's going to be seven days in and out. So you want to make sure you every seven days do an injection. You want to run your labs to verify it's not going too high. Other things you have out there is testosterone propionate. That's all right. It's also an injectable. It also uh, uh, is in and out of your body in a short period of time, except for the propionate's in and out within three days. You know, so it's a little bit faster, so you have a higher chance of those big arcs happening with the patient. So I'm not as big a fan of propionate. Testosterone pellets, uh, been around for a long time. Long time. Uh, are they good? In women, I prefer them. And men, I don't. And it's not because there's a difference between men and women in the sense that, oh, pellets work better in a woman. It's physiological. In men, you're going to be doing like, you know, 15, 16 pellets sometimes in their body. That's like buckshot. You know what I mean? And the pellets are like the size of a, a, a tic-tac. You know? Imagine sticking 16 tic-tacs under your glute in your butt. And that's, that's not fun. And your body will sooner or later look at those tic-tacs or those pellets in this case. And be like, yeah, you don't belong. And your body's going to squeeze them out like a splinter. And so you have that rejection. That happens. So, you know, testosterone pellets, they're a better release rate because they, they, they break down over four months and they melt, they dissolve in your body over four months. And that's a better release rate. If you look at the research, you look at this, the, the way it releases, it doesn't have these wide fluctuations and, and it doesn't cause hepatotoxicity and it doesn't hyperconvert to like dihydrotestosterone, things like that, or estradiol or, 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 you know, your red blood cell count won't be as high with it. It's just the body doesn't like it when it's done that many pellets in your glute, you know? Some people do it in the abdomen. I've never done a surgery on the abdomen like that. I'm not a big fan of inserting them in the abdomen. I prefer doing the glute, just my own personal experience career-wise. Um, you also have testosterone as a patch. You know, testosterone topically, and I spoke about this in my first podcast, you know, topical testosterone is not a great thing, you know, even as a patch. And the reason why is that topical testosterone, no matter what, you have to go through the layers of the epidermis. It gets through all those layers of the tissue before it gets into circulation. Every time it goes through another layer of tissue, it's going to have a higher conversion to uh, um, it's going to have a higher conversion to dihydrotestosterone. Dihydrotestosterone is the part of testosterone when elevated causes side effects. This is why you're going to have an enlarged prostate. This is why you're going to have red blood cells go high. This is why some people lose their hair. This is why I have oily skin. Dihydrotestosterone. And don't just take my word for it. If your doctor has you on topical patch or cream or gel or whatever, run your dihydrotestosterone levels and see where they are. 
If your total testosterone with the topical is sitting around 800, 900, right? Your dihydrotestosterone, I'll put money on it, is well over 100. It needs to be below 85 for men, okay? You are asking for side effects with the topical every single time. Well, now, what's the difference between doing a gel then or a patch? Why are they separate? Why, can't, why, why do they need to make a patch if you do a gel? The patch is a little bit better in the sense that you put the patch on and it's on the skin directly and the patch protects it from being transferred to other people. If you put gel on your, anytime you put a gel, any pretty topical, any kind of cream, you will transfer it to other people. I remember uh, I had this one guy I knew who had to wear Obsession cologne. <laughs> remember Obsession cologne? Obsession cologne's like this kind of like, I don't know, it's 80s fad. It was kind of cool obsession for men, you know? Guy would drown himself in it, dude. Drown himself in it. One time, he had this suitcase. It's a really nice suitcase. He's like, I'm not using the suitcase. You want it? I was like, I need a suitcase. I was young. I needed a suitcase. And uh, I'd rather get his than buy my own. His suitcase smelled so much like obsession. Like, I had to off-gas it in my garage, all right? So that's, that's, that's whenever you give the guy a hug. Hey, man, come on here. Give me a hug. You'd smell like obsession the rest of the day, you know? It's like that for topical testosterone. You know, you can't control its spread. If I take testosterone and I, and I swipe it here on my microphone piece right here, we close the door, leave, we come back a week later, it's still here, still potent. Say we come back 10 years from now, still here, still potent. So putting a topical hormone on your body does not guarantee it's going to get in your body, but it does guarantee it's going to get on someone else's body too. You know what I mean? It's, there's no controlling that one. So topical, not really good. Um, so that's the gel in the patch. I want to gel in directly. You know, the oral testosterone decanoid I mentioned a second ago. Um, oxandrolone, that's another synthetic. And oxandrolone, you know, that popular among bodybuilders. And the reason why is it doesn't aromatize to estrogen. So they think, oh, it's good. I take my testosterone without getting estrogen. That's wrong. That's actually bad. You need estrogen. Just like a woman needs testosterone, you as a man need estrogen. All right? Think of this. If you take testosterone, get high levels of that, and decide, I'm not going to get any more estrogen in your body, what's going to happen? You're going to build muscle. Great. You're going to build lots of muscle, maybe. And you're going to lean out. You're going to have less collagen because less estrogen doing that. You're going to lift weights, say, because that's what a lot of these guys do. You're going to lift weights with this great testosterone and no estrogen. You're going to get great results. What actually happens is your muscle starts to hypertrophy. It grows. It gets bigger because that's what you want. But the tendon attachment to the bone is not going to be nearly as healthy as it should be because it's compromised due to low estrogen. Think on that. So now you start lifting, what's going to happen? Avulsions. You see those guys who juice up and they always have an avulsion. They're always pulling a tendon. They always have a tendonopathy, a tendonitis. Why? Because they're shutting their estrogen down completely. What else goes wrong? With a man who cuts down his estrogen completely, you can't have an erection. Surprise. <laughs> the estrogen plays a role with your erections. Uh, don't trust me. <laughs> Look at the research. You know, uh, men who are born with a genetic predisposition not to make, not to aromatize, they can't aromatize. Some men are born rare, rare, rare genetic disorder where they do not aromatize their testosterone and estrogen, so they have estrogen deficiency. That presents with tendinopathies, erectile dysfunction, cognitive issues. You need estrogen. Okay, so this whole idea, like I don't need estrogen because I'm a man, is wrong. 
Um, another one's nandrolone. You know, nandrolone's kind of popular out there because you know you take that and you're not going to convert it to dihydrotestosterone. It doesn't have the five alpha reductase thing going on with it. So you're like, hey, I could take this and not worry about my dihydrotestosterone. The problem is by taking that, you don't have dihydrotestosterone, and just like estrogen, you need it. Dihydrotestosterone is not the problem. Just like estrogen is not the problem. The problem with estrogen and dihydrotestosterone is not its existence in your body. It's when it's out of balance. You need estrogen to be in a little bit. You need to be right there in the right range. You need dihydrotestosterone also to be in the right range. How many men have taken high doses of these 5-alpha reductase inhibitors to shut down their dihydrotestosterone so they don't lose hair? You know, that's the, the finasteride, that, that, that medication that are out there. And they find from taking finasteride these doses, they have erectile dysfunction. That's what it does. Dihydrotestosterone is a big player with your erections, your libido. Dihydrotestosterone is very important. So you're shutting it down. So nandrolone, not a good choice either. So off that whole list, the only thing in there I'm really recommending for men is testosterone cypionate. That does the heavy lifting in my practice. Sometimes, rarely, I need to give other things to guys. And topical, if I have to do it, I'll do it. But I have to watch for those downstream metabolites. I have to make sure that their family's not being exposed. Anytime, just like I said in my first podcast, first episode, you can do these hormones so long as you know what the side effects and the downstream metabolites are and you're able to control for them. But you can't give it to people without doing that. You've got to do your work. That's why when I mentioned earlier in, this, in the previous episode where, where these men are going to these testosterone clinics, testosterone prescription has gone up through the roof. If you'll remember, I brought that up and there's a slide that shows that. The testing's dropped off a cliff at the same time. So these men are getting testosterone levels we don't know and it's turning into things in their body we don't know they're turning into. Not a good thing. So where does the system go wrong when you go to the doctor's office and they give you testosterone finally and they prescribe it to you? Where does it go wrong? Say they pick whatever it is they prescribe you. Well, I've already gone over some of the things that go wrong. They give it to you and it turns into something it shouldn't or they shut down a pathway more than it should. So you have too much dihydrotestosterone or you have too little estrogen. You know, those things, okay, they go wrong. But the real problem we have with testosterone replacement therapy in men nowadays is there's very little in the literature that goes over how to maintain their care over time long term. There's very little in there about how to monitor, how to maintain, how to care for those men long-term. This lack of clear direction in the industry has led to the uptick in these pill mill kind of operations that bring men in and give them high levels of testosterone unmonitored in risky environments. That's why. That's the problem we're having. That's where the system goes wrong. And these downstream metabolites are going to be either ignored or mythologized. You know, like estrogen is evil. They're mythologizing it. That's not true. Or with women, the same thing. They mythologize testosterone to women. That's evil. That's, that's not true either. And, and people make wrong decisions based upon that data. And all of it goes back to marketing. You know what I mean? Why would you put down estrogen? Because it sounds good. It's marketing. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. You tell a man you need estrogen, he'll freak him out. You challenge his masculinity right there. And that's what happens. So that's why they pull it out a lot of times, I feel. That's my opinion. I'm going to say there's no research with what I just said there. That's my opinion. Is there another way? Yeah, there sure as hell is. Sorry, should I curse? There's, all right.
keep that one in there, take it from the Scherzel. What would that look like? You know, what I feel works well is a care plan for treating adult onset hypogonadism. It requires the following. You're going to have lab work specific to the delivery mechanism you're using. So examples unique to the delivery mechanism would be, you know, topical. We're run dihydrotestosterone levels in those guys that we have to give them topical. And then we're also going to make it a point to test their family and make sure it's not being spread throughout the family. Even pets. You say, Brennan, that sounds extreme. Not really. It's not hard. It's a quick blood draw. It's not an expensive test. I think in my office, we charge $20 total for a cash price for a testosterone-free and total lab. That's the price for the actual test. I know it's billed at $300 to $400 to your insurance. I know that. But the actual cash price in my office, if someone doesn't have insurance or doesn't want to use insurance or whatever it is, whatever, they want to pay money cash to run the lab, 20 bucks. The blood draw, I think, is $20 too. So it's about $40 in out the door to test your testosterone-free and total. That's it. And... If you're trying to make sure that your wife is not getting too much testosterone, I think that's priceless. That's me, though. So if you're stuck with doing topical, this is what we do. Um, oral liver enzymes. We look at dihydrotestosterone because oral will hyperconvert to dihydro as well. I didn't mention that earlier. I run sex hormone binding globulin, which we talked about in the first episode. But sex hormone binding globulin will sequester and render inert a lot of your testosterone. You don't want to have too much sex hormone binding globulin because it takes the testosterone you have and it makes it inert. So you need to always balance that. So sex hormone binding globulin is very important in the lab. And then injectable or pellets, I'm going to run your estradiol, hemoglobin, hematocrit, dihydrotestosterone. These are the things we do to make sure that it's safe with our patients. So I run these labs to verify that they're safe taking these hormones and I keep them within a very tight, safe range, always. We do control the dose that we give to men. Say you go to your doctor and um, you gotta, you know, you hurt yourself or something, you know, and uh, your doctor's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna prescribe you Vicodin, which is not as popular nowadays, which is great, it's not popular. Say your doctor says, I'm gonna give you Vicodin. Would they give you Vicodin in a little tub, in a powder form with a little scooper? And say, hey, just scoop a little out and give it to yourself, you know, three times a day, you'll be fine. They don't do that <laughs> to opiates right? They don't, you don't go to your doctor's office and, and say, you know, I have a headache and they're like, well, let me give you this powder here and you scoop it in here and just take a little bit when you have a headache. What happens when they do that? Well, the studies are very clear. When you give someone a pile of a drug in a form where they could dispense it to volume themselves, they're going to give themselves too much. So do I dispense or allow men to be prescribed vials of testosterone? No, never. Nah, I'm not a fan of it. The reason why is that they will overdraw, they will overinject on the regular. This is a fact. And, and it is important to control the doses you give them because it never can be too high or too low. It needs to be precise. So we're very specific how we dispense it. Further, a 10 milliliter vial of testosterone for men is what's the common amount you, you see in the market these days. And a 10 milliliter vial of testosterone for a guy has it in anywhere from 10 to 20, even 25 injections in it. So it's 10 to 25 weeks of testosterone in there. It is a fact that once you puncture the rubber stopper of that vial to draw your testosterone up, that vial will expire in 30 days because the chance of bacteria getting through the rubber stopper go up over time. So no longer is your product going to be safe after 30 days. So that means you have a guy, a 10 mil vial, that's good for 20 weeks or so, and only four weeks in, he's throwing it out. 
Is he really throwing it out? Probably not. So it's important to control the delivery mechanism that you're giving to them. It's always important. Um, what about what about injections? You need to teach them how to inject if you're doing injection versions. Topical, you need to teach them how to be hygienic about it. You need to teach them how to administer themselves in a safe way. Like with people with topical, I teach them, you know, take a shower, wake up in the morning. Or no, no, before your shower, wake up, put the topical on. You leave it on for a period of time. After that, you take a shower. The clothes you wore that was touching the testosterone, put it in a separate laundry bin. We have a whole program for that whole thing. But it's important to acknowledge the mechanism they're getting it with, the method they're getting, and, and you want to make sure they're getting it in a reasonable way that's safe. Um, we need to time the labs relative to the delivery method. So, so if they're getting injectable testosterone recipient, you're going to inject and then you're going to draw the blood four days after that injection. So you always want to make sure you're not inject, you're not drawing the blood the day of the testosterone injection or the day after or even the day before the shot because it's either going to be really high or really low with that. You need to test it in the middle. So your lab work needs to be consistent with the mechanism that you're using to deliver it to the patient. Um, you need to run their labs regularly. You need to run them at least every six months. You know, you should not go longer than six months because we change in our health. There are times when they'll need more and times when they'll need less. It will fluctuate over the lifetime of those patients. And if you keep giving them the same dose and now it becomes too much and you're supposed to lower the dose, by letting them keep running that testosterone at that higher level over time, they have more side effects. So it's really important to maintain a schedule with them. What happens if they don't keep the schedule? Taper the dose down then. You need to stay on dose. You need, they need to be aware that lab work is an essential part of this type of care. So this is going to be a three-parter. <laughs> you know, I always say women are the most complex thing I treat and take the most focus. And, um, and the more I do these presentations, the more I realize men, men are just as complicated in a lot of ways, in some ways even more so. Um, so we're going to stop here. <laughs> I'm going to come back again. We'll do part three. I'm hoping this will be a part three, but there's a chance this may be a four-parter. And that's just crazy. And I'm sorry in advance. I know I like to make things precise and, and zip them up nice and tight for you guys and, and keep it within a 20, 25-minute window. But uh, this is a long stuff. So um, as always, if this material had value to you, if it helped you in some way, if it you know, could serve someone that you know, please like, share, subscribe. When you do that, it lets me know this material is important and I will continue producing it. Thank you very much for tuning in and I will see you soon.